Geek Top 5 Quarantine Edition. Yay! It was time now. There was was all the time I needed. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And it's 2021. With 2020 safely in the rearview mirror, we're all hoping for things to, uh, to let's face it, to pick up. Uh, but for now, it's still quarantine edition, and we are back. Um, look, it's quarantine. It's still a little bit creepy out there, and uh, we decided that that's not the kind of thing that you know we can handle entirely on our own. Uh, so we've brought back in uh, some of the the experts in creepy that we've talked to before. Uh, Returning to the show, a guest and a sort of half new guest. Grant, let us know what we're dealing with today. Today we've got guests from Darkside Media and Danger Dads who are producing a comic book crossover, Lovecraft P.I. meets Miskatonic High. This is issue number two that we're going to be talking about, and uh, its uh, Kickstarter has, is underway. Let's introduce returning guest uh, Dave Kahn. How are you, sir? Good, good. How are you guys doing this evening? It's very cold. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, it's, been, it's, it's okay. <laughs> And uh, our new guest for this evening's conversation is Mike Shea, the Miskatonic High half of the pairing. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm hiding from my kids in my basement. So basically 2021 is a lot like 2020. Right. <laughs> <laughs> An absence of dramatic change so far, but knock on wood. We'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, for those of you just joining us, um, we spoke to, to Dave Kahn a little while ago. Uh, check out episode 29 of our quarantine season, uh, where we introduced the Lovecraft crossover. Um, we'll go back over what, uh, what that is, but we really get in touch with Dave and some of the cool stuff he's done in the past, as well as the ideas that uh, brought, him, uh, brought him up to what we're doing now. But we didn't get a chance to talk to Mike, so now we can sort of hear the, the other side of the coin and see if the stories line up. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> And then we have another cool top five list to take a look at. But uh, before we, we jump into all that, so let's go over the basics again. Mike, Dave, so tell us a little bit uh, about what you guys are writing and what this crossover is all about, just to, to summarize for the folks who missed the last episode. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, two separate Lovecraft-based comic books, uh, Miskatonic High, which is about high school kids taking on Lovecraft monsters in their small town high school and they're not really sure which one is worse. Um, meets up with the uh, Lovecraft PI, Detective Ward Lovecraft from the Miskatonic Supernatural Detective Agency, who uh, is a bit of an expert at dealing with uh, uh, cosmic creatures and unknown things. And he is coming from the past to the future in Miskatonic High Part 1. And then part two, which we'll be talking about tonight, is when the kids go back in time to uh, Lovecraft P.I.'s time. Great. So uh, can you give us a bit of your background? How'd you get into comic book making? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big geek. I've been reading comic books my whole life. And uh, oh, let's say about 10 years ago, I met up with a guy named Ryan Mendoza, who's the artist and co-creator on, on Miskatonic High. And we started doing fan fiction. We started doing, you know property that said other people owned and just having fun with it and as we were doing it we started to realize you know what this is actually half decent like people might actually read this if we gave them a chance <laughs> um so we decided you know what let's let's stop doing the fan fiction start doing our own thing and see where we can go with it and at the time he he's much more of a lovecraft fan than i am he knows the ins and outs of it whereas i've read lots of the stories i know lots of the stories but like he really lives the stories like i'm, I'm pretty sure he's got the two of those slippers at home um so he he was really into it he wanted to do something creepy and what he was saying was you know something kind of like miskatonic university but like younger and i was like you know i wanted to do something with high school kids because i like the drama and i like the humor and i like all of that so he was like, you know, let's do a breakfast club from hell and we'll set it in a Lovecraft universe. And that became Miskatonic High. And, and so it's about kids dealing with Lovecraft monsters and, you know, also their high school and they're dealing with all kinds of crap that, you know, is terrible and horrible. And they're facing down, you know, these savage monsters that don't care anything about them. And that's just their teachers. Um, so... <laughs> 
and yeah, so we just we just started doing it, and the idea was, you know, we'll mix Lovecraft horror, we'll mix, you know, teenage angst and comedy, and you know, with a little bit of pathos, and see what we get. And we just started doing it, and uh, for us, we just do every issue is like a separate story, so it's like really a standalone thing. It's like really harkening back to old school comic books where you could pick up one comic and you got one story in that comic. And so we just started doing that, you know, so one story was about, you know, rat things living underground. And one story was about, you know, ancient wizards back in, you know, Egyptian times. And one story is about a, uh, a Filipino girl who um, her family has been hunt- haunted by Aswangs, which are kind of vampires from the Philippines. And so, you know, each one's kind of different and different allows us to tell different kinds of stories. And we st- took it to Kickstarter and people really responded to it. And we just, uh, kickstarted number nine. And so, yeah, we've had, uh, had a lot of success doing it. How did you come to using Kickstarter for all these projects? Right. So we, uh, did that, uh, classic thing of people not really knowing what the hell we were doing. Um, so we did six issues on our own before we did anything. And the idea was we were going to go take these six issues to a publisher, you know, Marvel, DC, one, you know, somebody who would take a chance on a nobody and, and publish the whole thing with, you know, no, no qualms about it. And surprisingly enough, when we sent it out to publishers, they didn't want to publish it. I, I, that one out. Um, so we were talking about after that, like, what do we do here? Do we put it online? Do we become like an online comic? Do we, what do we do? And so we decided, you know, we wanted to make print issues. And if we were going to do print issues, that was money. And so we needed to bring some money in to do it. And so we started looking at Kickstarter and really until we did that, we didn't realize how viable Kickstarter was going to be as a way to be a market for independent comics. And, you know, we, what we thought was, okay, we're going to put it up. We'll sell 15 issues and it'll be an amazing success. And so we did that and we put it up and instead we sold 400 issues and we were like, we were blown away by it and people really liked it. And then we did another one and they kept, kept coming back and we get more people, you know, wanting more issues, asking for more things. They asked for variant covers. So we started giving them variant covers. They started asking for merchandise to go with it. So we gave them merchandise to go with it and we started doing trading cards and, you know, really, that whole part of it has been driven by the Kickstarter community. They've told us what they want to do or they want us to do. And we're happy to do it because, you know, they are really the lifeblood that are making this comic, you know, actually exist. That's really cool. Uh, and how did you guys end up teaming up? How did the this crossover come together? Oh, right. So... When uh, Dave was putting up, I believe, his second book up on Kinks, up on Kickstarter, and we had been around for a little bit at that point, probably three or four issues, and he sent me the link and said, hey, you know, I've, I've seen you up on Kickstarter. You know, I like what you're what you're doing with, with your book, and would you mind taking a look at, at my Kickstarter campaign? And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. I, I love to help out other people, and so took a look at it. And, like, from the first moment I saw it, I was blown away by it. So... First off, Daniel, who's the artist on it, his art is incredible. It, you know, he really does such a great job of capturing that that Lovecraft uh, mythos atmosphere and, you know, the noir look to it. But as I was reading it and once I started reading the books, um, the thing that, that struck me was what I like about, about Lovecraft, modern Lovecraft, is not the people who are doing the exact same thing that Lovecraft did. You know, there's plenty of people who do that. There's plenty of people who do adaptations of Lovecraft stories, and they're usually pretty good, and and I have a good time with them. But what I really respond to are the people who take Lovecraft and take it in a new direction. You know, that's that's what we did. We took it, you know, we took Lovecraft and we took it in the high school comedy direction, which is, you know, not something that that H.P. Lovecraft is, you know, probably too pleased with us about. Um, you know, so when I took a look at what Dave was doing, I loved the way he had taken Lovecraft and the mythos and merged it with noir and, and those tropes. And he really brought out something new to talk about in Lovecraft that people really weren't talking about in Lovecraft. And, you know, I, I really responded to that. And then once I read the books, like there was a, there was a, there was a depth to it that I wasn't expecting. Here's the thing. So 
Dave's books look great. They read great. They read fast. They read punchy. You know what you expect from noir. But there's also some hidden depths in there. Um, you know, there was one point where he was talking about Ward Lovecraft, Detective Ward Lovecraft, was a World War One veteran, and you could see that he had psychic scars from that experience, and that was really cool to me that he wasn't just you know, a stock figure, he really had a backstory that had affected him. And, you know, that's solid writing right there. And then the other part was he, he deals with monsters, he runs into monsters, and he doesn't see the monsters as monsters. He sees the monsters as being just more people, you know, it's like people can be monsters and monsters can be people. And it's all kind of the same to, to, to detective Lovecraft. And that was such a cool concept, like, you know, you don't get that in Lovecraft of people looking at monsters and seeing people. So I really responded to it and we started talking and I can't remember, Dave, do you remember whether you proposed the crossover or I did, but one of us did. Yeah. I don't remember exactly how they came about. I know after reading a couple of your issues, that's what got me into, uh, you know, wanting to do the project with you as a crossover because I thought throwing Ward into a situation where he's going to deal with five modern teenagers would be kind of fun to deal with, especially you know, uh, how dark the last two books were that we uh, we had done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that was it. I think after that, I said, hey, you know, be kind of, I, I wanted to kind of branch him out as, uh, you know, exploring other things besides his own world. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I may have mentioned it to you that uh, it'd be kind of a fun little, you know, kind of a throwback to the old, like, Scooby-Doo episodes of, like, Batman and Robin showing up in Scooby-Doo. It's like, you know, <laughs> yep. two things you would never expect to have happen, and they just do, and they it just seems to always have a kind of a fun outcome. Right, like with Scooby-Doo, you you never expect Scooby-Doo to run into, you know, the Adam West Batman. But when you put those two together, you're like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I can see that working really well. And right. a lot of people Less have told so the Christian Bale Batman. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, once they do the, 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 the gritty reboot of Scooby-Doo, that'll work perfectly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> we joke about that. Like, oh, it's, it's not definitely a it's Scooby-Doo Apocalypse. <laughs> I haven't read it, but I think it's out there. Oh, God. Yeah, it's somewhere somewhere yeah. out there. There's a Hollywood producer saying, that's brilliant. I'm stealing that. <laughs> so let's um, – so we've we've spoken a little bit about – I mean, we, we spent a lot of time last episode talking about Ward, and we've mentioned him here too. But let's let's talk about mm-hmm. your kids. I mean, because like you said, it's it's very different from what H.P. Lovecraft envisioned for this universe. And I just, I, I mean, I guess I'm not sure if I want to go with tongue in cheek, but it's definitely from through their eyes. They're looking at this world in a very different way. And that's communicated to the, like, the, the like in the, like the first page mm-hmm. of your crossover, you have sort of the, the dramatis personae. And I love the contrast here. You have the character mm-hmm. Ren, who's described as the seer of mm-hmm. memories, <laughs> which is Lovecraft as hell. <laughs> And then, the, and then the next character is Simon, the school board student representative. <laughs> <laughs> like, obviously, there's like it's a very different way to look at it. So, tell us a little bit about who these people are and how it's sort of subverting those expectations. Yeah, absolutely. So, when I got into Lovecraft, I didn't get into Lovecraft till I was older. I, you know, I got in through Alan Moore, what he was doing in a number of his comic books, and. One of the comic books that he had proposed early on, like back in the 80s, and, and I think he lost the scripts for it, and so he never did it, was uh, taking the ideas that Lovecraft played with and taking them in new directions. You know, he called it like taking a clipping from a plant and then planting it in, seeing if you can create a, you know, a new plant from it. And that idea sort of always appealed to me, you know, that I love the ideas of Lovecraft. I don't always love the Lovecraft stories, but I love the ideas of them. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil part of my my series, but there was this one that I Lovecraft story that I listened to, the Lurking Fear, and it's a it it's kind of a terrible story. It's kind of terribly written. You don't really understand what's going on half the time, but essentially, it's about these people who have de-evolved and have lived underground and became these sort of rat ape things and you know one of the things that they figured out that they were humans who devolved because they came from a family that had two different colored eyes and so then they see the rat thing with the two different colored eyes and they knew that they had been human and it's such a brilliant idea and it was in such a horrible story that you know the moment ryan 
pre- presented the idea of doing Lovecraft, but doing our version of it, I was like, yeah, I can totally see a high school kid who her family, that's the curse on her family, is they they de-evolve and become rat things. And she's going to have to face that for the rest of her life, knowing that that's going to happen to her. And, you know, it's it's a powerful idea enough, and we can do it, you know, with fun and horror and grandma shooting a shotgun and all these things. But at the end of the day, and some reviewer picked up on this, it's very true to what people are dealing with. Like, you know, my my mother, uh, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, and my mother for the her entire life has been staring at the idea that someday she's going to have Alzheimer's. You know, and it petrifies her, it scares her. It's you know, it's her living horror. And so it's, it's, you know, I found a way to bring that into a comic and make it fun and make it cool and make it horrorful. But also there's some real ideas there and there's some real feeling there and there's some real depth to these characters. And so, you know, when I was pitching the characters to Ryan said, okay, look, these are going to be the characters. They're going to be plagued with, you know, Lovecraftian things, but they're also going to be kind of like anime where you know you get all these kids you know in a lot of anime you get kids in a high school and you never really see them at home the parents don't exist it's it's all the microcosm of the school and that's kind of what we wanted to do was kind of the microcosm of the school so these kids are at school and it's mainly a school-based story and you can have comedy and you can have horror and you can mix it all together and what I've always found is if you have strong characters, if you have compelling characters that people can really relate to, they will follow you wherever you go. You can go into comedy, you can go into horror, you can go into an outer space story. As long as the character stays true to who they want that character to be, they will follow you. And so that's kind of what we wanted to do. So, you know, we wanted to mix it with comedy. So, yeah, we have one girl who has psychic powers and can see memories and ghosts and things. And we have one kid who is ambitious as hell and his greatest dream is to be, you know, class president and he will do anything in his power to get there. And at the time that didn't seem like a political statement, but you know, things are weird now. Yeah, that's a yeah, fair right? point yeah, I hadn't yeah. even considered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's sort of how we came at the comic and you know, one of the things that we wanted to do was, you know, we were talking about at the time 2016 2017 whenever we were putting this together we don't want to make this a depressing comic you know there's enough depressing things in the world as it was and that was like 2016 um you know we wanted to just do 20 minutes of a fun comic that people could really enjoy you know and so that's what it is that's sort of where the the humor came from you know that tongue-in-cheek humor that sometimes get a you know a little a little more than just tongue in cheek, but um, yeah, that's where it came from. Is we just want to you know give people a good time, fun with the otherworldly eldritch abomination. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, issue two that you've got your Kickstarter going on, and I believe it's issue two of two. But it also seems like you guys have a, a good relationship. Like you guys seem to from from our. our brief interviews here it feels like there's a real connection here can we expect it to go beyond these two issues or further collaborations well we've always talked about it um the the first part of it was you know doing any crossover i've read enough crossovers from marvel or dc and you know the you get excited about the crossover it's like oh man batman and spider-man are going to tangle this is going to be the greatest thing ever and then you read it and you realize that it took place on an alternate universe with you know, a fictional Spider-Man and, you know, a, a Batman from three, you know, revisions ago and from the DC universe. And it doesn't mean anything. So when Dave and I were talking about doing the crossover, we both really agreed that, look, this is going to be canon for our books. You know, this is something that really happens to our, our characters and is going to have an effect on them going forward. And when we both decided that, it sort of made the crossover weightier and you know gave it gave it a depth to it that we both really liked and so dave's been working on stories based upon where it goes at the end of the crossover i just sent a script over to ryan to illustrate um you know events immediately happening after the crossover so yeah i mean we both are i I don't want to speak for dave but i know that i'm really happy with what it is i really enjoyed it i thought the crossover 
really brought a lot of fun and excitement and challenge to the to the series and had a really great time doing it and yeah I, I would love to do more but you know I know he's got a whole nother series he's doing first and so we'll see where, where it is down there what do you say Dave yeah no I, I definitely want to work together with uh, Mike again on um, you know on future projects whether it be another crossover with these characters or, or something else um, one of the things I just wanted to say that I really liked with these characters a lot is I you know I had read all of the Miskatonic High stories that, that he had available at the time when we were starting this crossover. And, um, you know, they, uh, all the kids become very endearing in, in their own way to you. And to, to pitch them up against Warden to see how he could handle characters like that, it was very interesting and a lot of fun. And when, um, you know, Mike was mentioning about, uh, you know, Sarah you know, and, her, and her rat relatives, you know, that, that plays heavily in both... Um, not heavily, I should say, but it does. It, it, we touch upon it in both issues of the crossover, um, and there's there's some type of uh, resolution, so to speak, to it. You know, and and to me that was just a lot of fun because you know war doesn't deal with, you know, first off he doesn't necessarily deal with kids all the time, but second of all he doesn't deal with, you know, just uh, you know adolescents dealing with uh, dealing with the struggles that he normally sees in a, you know with adults and monsters and so on and so forth. So. Um, I thought it was just kind of a nice little relationship between like kind of the father of the kids as well as a mentor, but also the kids were teaching him a, a lot of things, particularly in the second issue um, where they kind of take the reins, you know, and they kind of, um, you know, lead the pack, so to speak. And, um, you know, take care of the bag, you know, take care of the Chevy, you know, and to me that's a lot of fun because it's like, you don't want to just have it be, you know, the main character from one crossover taking over, you know, the entire spotlight. You want to kind of split it up a little bit. So I think having, you know, having, especially with the five kids, it was definitely, it was tough to make sure that all worked out. But I think in the end, it came together as a, as a perfect, like, little um, unity of these characters kind of working together for one cause. Yeah, and I, I think you discovered what I discovered too late, which is when you do a group book, you know, a team book, you have to find some way to shoehorn in five different characters into every story so everybody gets, you know, something to do. And it's... It, one that it's a little easier on my side because when Ward came over, I only had the one character to to work out and then just had him react with the kids like like normal. But I think you had the harder job of trying to figure out because the kids sort of take a bigger role in the second issue than they do the first. I you know I felt like the first issue was much more with Ward being the fish out of water, and so you know his story was sort of more at the center, whereas with the second one with the kids being the fish out of the water, they became more of the centerpiece. And so you had, I think you had the harder job of trying to get, you know, all five something to do and making sure that everybody had, you know, a little bit of story to, to tell. Well, well, the, the, the great thing with that though, was the, was just having all those back issues because if I didn't have those back issues or at least have some idea what all these characters had done at this point, uh, there's a lot of like little references, you know, even if you haven't read the, all the Miskatonic High uh, books, there's a ton of little Easter eggs and references to all those previous issues, one way or the other with all the characters. You know, even Simon just wanted to be the head cadet. He's not, you know, he's not going to be class president in this issue, but he's going to be head cadet. That's what he wants. So, so we, we always kind of just switch these things off for just comedy purposes, but also, you know, make the characters a little enduring in, you know, in a different time period as well and see how they kind of react in it. Yeah, and that's, that's a, actually, that's a very good point that you make because... When we started talking about doing a crossover, I was talking with somebody else who did a Lovecraft book, and he was kind of hot on the idea of doing a crossover as well. And I'm like, I'm, I don't think we should right now. A, you know, I'm already doing one over here, but also, you've only done one issue. You know, it doesn't make sense to do a crossover until you have some backstory. Like, you know, the the idea of a crossover is you get excited about seeing characters from one. IP or one universe interact with characters from another universe. If if that character is brand new, it, it doesn't mean as much. You know, it right. really harkens back to sort of those fan fiction days for me, which is, you know, I want to see, you know, Superman tangle with the Hulk and see who wins, but then also tell an actual story there. You know, that's, as a fan, that's what interests me. And so, like, I'm glad we didn't we didn't do the crossover, you know, like right after we had done one issue or after you had only done the one trade, you know, it really right. made sense that we both had, you know, some backstory to, to play upon because it really did. It all came up in the story. 
Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And just to uh, just to clarify, I think I've got it. So the way this worked is you sort of wrote for each other's characters when it was sort of the central and your thing, and then just bounced it back and forth just to verify that they sounded right. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> so one of the ideas that that I when we were first talking about how we were going to do the crossover was I when I was a kid I watched um, Simon and Simon the the brother detectives um and they were on immediately after magnum pi which you know had tom Selleck and everything and was a big hit and so what they would do was um every now and again the simon and simon brothers would show up on magnum pi and you know they would be out in hawaii you know crashing the helicopter or whatever um and then you know they would tangle with magnum pi and then it would go become the simon and simon episode and you know magnum pi would show up in san diego but you know since simon and simon had a limited budget it was usually like higgins or somebody um but anyway the you know the idea that these two separate shows could overlap could cross over and so when we were kicking around the idea one of the ideas that came up was what if the first issue is a miskatonic high issue and the second issue is a Lovecraft PI issue, you know. And so our, so I would write the first one, the Miskatonic High one. Ryan would do the art on it. It would be a Miskat. It would be in Miskatonic, you know, during modern era. And then the second one would be by written by Dave with his art team, going back in time to Lovecraft PI time. And so that's really you can once you see it, you get it. Um, and but what happened was so I, I wrote the first one. We we both came up with the plot, um, you know, had mapped it all out. I, I wrote the first script, and as I was writing it, I realized I didn't have Lovecraft's voice right. Like, there's one thing to read his books and really like it and have an idea of who he is as a character, and there's another thing to take that next step and really have his voice. And I just didn't have it, so went to Dave and said, Hey, look, you know, would you please, please, please just come in, tweak this, this, you know, the dialogue and really make it sound like Lovecraft. And he did. And it, the, the moment after he did it, it felt, it just sang, it sounded so much better. And he was nice enough that when he did, when he did his script, he let me come in and, you know, tweak up the kids and just, you know, find those little things. And, you know, uh, there's one point we just did made this correction or made this change in the second one where there was a point where Lovecraft was talking to... So in the second one, they go back to 1932. It's um, at the Washington Mall, um, and it's during what's known as the Bonus Army, which was the height of the Great Depression. World War I veterans showed up on the Washington Mall demanding the bonus that they were promised for being in the Army during the war, and you know the government hadn't paid. And so rather than paying these people and telling them, you know, getting them to leave peacefully from the Washington Mall, they called in the army with army with tanks and guns and horses and cavalry and all this and ran them off. And so that's where we decided to set the second one, you know, have in the middle of this riot, you know, this cosmic creature comes down and starts eating people. So, um, so that's where they went back to and... At one point, Lovecraft P.I. turns to one of the World War One veterans and starts talking to him. And, you know, one of the kids, I think it was Ren, said something about, you know, why are you talking to this guy? And it, it wasn't strong enough. Like, and then Lovecraft said something about, you know, look, he's a, he's a World War One veteran. You know, he's a good guy. You know, he, we all fought proudly in the war and all this. And one of the things that I suggested to Dave was, look, don't be afraid to make the kids worse. I mean... That's what we do in our book. They're teenagers. They say stupid things. They do stupid things. You know, they're not always really nice people. And so just really suggested, look, have her say, you know, look, why are you talking to these hicks who stink? You know, really make it hard so that when he comes back and says, you know, look, no, they're patriotic people. It's, it's like a strong reaction to what she said that, you know, it's okay to make kids unlikable sometimes. And I, you know... Again, I, I give Dave all the credit in the world for letting me come in and make those changes because I think the book really paid off. And I think the first one paid off when he came in and made the changes to, to the first one. Well, it's, it's funny, actually, that you mentioned that particular scene because a friend of mine who, is, uh, who um, had uh, fund, helped, uh, helped us fund both books uh, as one of our backers on Kickstarter, he, um, you know, he, read, 
you know, when he was going over it, he, he read that part and that, that tweak that you had made. And he said, you know, it, what, is, it, what, what Ward's comeback at that point is a lot more impactful. I mean, he had never read the script, what it had looked yeah. like prior to that change. Mm-hmm. But he was like, he particularly mentioned that, that scene. And he was like, yeah, you know, the way Ward comes back at her or at that whole, you know, the response to that is very, he doesn't do it, he does it, he does it very politely, but also, you know, really nails it home that why these guys are who they are, who he is, because he's one of them, you know, right. and it's just, just going to have that respect, you know, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, and it's, it, it, and again, it's just a word. It's a couple of words that just make that much more of an impactful thing. And the other thing I wanted to mention too, is that uh, Mike had this ingenious idea early on. He said, you know, you use a different, you use a type of font for, uh, you know, in your books, the way Ward talks and, and we use a different type of font uh, in our books, the way the kids talk. So, why don't we do that in both books? It's like the way the kids are, we use my, our font and vice versa. And it's a super subtle thing. But when you actually read the books, it, 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 it actually adds that little extra punch, you know, right. um, to kind of get into the heads of those characters. Right. And, you know, I always liken font to like accents. So it's like, you know, Ward would have a, a sound to his voice that would be different from what the kids would have in modern times. So, yeah. So I think you always see it in font. So I think you're right on there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, and getting getting back to what you talking about, you know, those little tweaks, and I I think you hit on a storytelling technique there, because we did it in the first issue, where Ward was kind of really blunt and mean to Sarah, and when I showed it to people, people were, you know, they, they didn't quite gasp, but they were kind of surprised that he was so blunt and so hard to her, mm-hmm. and. I, you know, I think there's kind of a failing of storytelling sometimes nowadays because they want everybody to be perfect and everybody to be nice and they want them to be the same from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. Whereas, you know, characters don't work like that. Like you need them to be mean and angry and go through these progressions so that by the time you get to the end of the thing, you've gone on an experience with them. And, you know, it, I really, I, I've said this a number of times and I really mean it is... I was so grateful to have Lovecraft come into that world and be that guy who's been through this, who can be really blunt and mean and just plain spoken about it. And, you know, in a really old fashioned way, you know, where, where people just talk straight talk because modern people don't tend to do that. So I, you know, I just having Lovecraft PI show up in the book it, it changed things in the storytelling that we were doing for the better that, you know, is really going to carry forward for us. Yeah, same here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So I, I do want to get to our uh, our top five list, but I also want to give you a chance to, to plug the Kickstarter a bit. Where, what can you get from, from this Kickstarter? What are the levels that we're looking at? This is all you, Dave. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, how many levels do we got? We've got about uh, what do we got? Twenty nine, thirty levels. We get different yeah, rewards. Like yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty crazy uh, campaign we've got going on. Um, yeah, so you can get the uh, obviously the the part two, and we've got the print and uh, digital versions of that, as well as uh, part one. You can also get. We have a um, one of the things we decided to do um, as an experiment for this is we created a the Shubby uh, eight inch uh, figure kit. Um, which is something that I've done some figure kits in the past on uh, Kickstarter and they do pretty well. And so we wanted to kind of give the, uh, the fans of uh, both, both IPs this kind of, kind of a new, you know, venturing off into new territory. So we have this eight inch uh, figure kit of Chevy, which it's based off of um, uh, more of Ryan's design than Daniel's, uh, you know, cause there's just more of that in the comics. So we, and we've just, the design is so crazy and outlandish, even my, um, and, um, Three sculptor was saying, he goes, man, I've never created anything like this. This is so crazy and wild. He goes, I don't know where things begin, where things go. He goes, just, <laughs> but it's awesome because I just love this creature. And so we were able to get that done. Um, and those are made now as we speak. We, we were doing pretty well with selling those. So we're, we're quite happy about that. We've got a, a Chevy pin. Um, we've got a mysterious, uh, mysterious bag, which we have all sorts of stuff that Mike always likes to, to sneak in there for folks. What else we got? We got lobby cards. We've got variant covers by... Uh, Daniel, um, by another artist, uh, Colin Kruger, who I use, who does our book, uh, Berserkers, which is coming out soon. Uh, Ryan did a variant for us. Um, 
Am I leaving anything out, Mike? (laughs) Uh, No, I do want to mention Corwin's cover, though, and and, um, uh, Daniel's other cover, because one of the things, you know, again, we were talking about how one of the inspirations for us was, you know, Scooby-Doo meets Batman or Scooby-Doo meets, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters or whatever. And so, you know, Dave hired Harlan and he's doing this variant cover for us where our, where the Miskatonic High kids are dressed up like the Scooby-Doo characters. And, you know, they're running away from Chaluthu and, you know, Lovecraft B.I. is helping them there. And, you know, it really has that, that uh, Scooby-Doo meets so-and-so vibe to it, but also with a very Lovecraftian feel to it. It's very cool. And then, uh, you know, we we wanted to do that for like a modern one. And then for an olden time one, we decided to do Abbott and Costello meets the Wolfman. So, uh, you know, Lovecraft B.I. is Abbott and Costello and the kids are dressed up like the Wolfman and the monsters and, and meeting them. And, you know, it feels like an old movie poster and it looks very cool. So if, if you like variant covers, you should definitely check this out. Cool. All right. Towards the end of the episode, we'll list all the links and everything you need to, to find it all. Um, but let's uh, let's switch gears a bit. So one of the things we do on this show is we settle for all time the uh, the things that need to be ranked, things that would normally be considered subjective but are now objective. Um, so I know when we had Dave on before, we did the top five all-time Lovecraft crazy monsters, creatures abominations, whatever you'd call them. Uh, we got to go in something with a little bit different today. Well, you know, you guys have sort of collaborated on this. What are you bringing, what are you bringing for us here today? Yeah, so we're doing the uh, top five noir, and, and uh, this, was, this was not easy list to put together. And um, <laughs> I mean, cripe, you know, all five, we could just put all Bogart movies. Um, you know, <laughs> so it, it was tough. So what we tried to do is come up with stuff that we like that's um, – particular in with, uh, you know, each of our characters and our IPs, but also, at least uh, on my own picks, um, I wanted to go something uh, that people may not may or may not think that are noir films, but actually, you know, in a lot of senses, I think are. Uh, they were highly influenced, uh, you know, influential on me and myself of um, creating my character, uh, Lovecraft, and, uh, you know, just the, the kind of world that the, you know, that character lives in at this point, so... So, Mike, I don't know if you want, you want to start off with your favorite, uh, what are your sure, favorite sure. ones? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. So, I, we were just talking about this one today, but, you know, as long as we're going to start talking about noir, we got to start with Humphrey Bogart. And the one that I yeah. always go to is The Big Sleep. Uh, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, uh, Raymond, uh, based on a Raymond Chandler book, uh, you know, and it's just... This thing is a crazy, crazy movie. There's so many people who get killed. The plot is ho all over the place. It's blackmail. It's smutty books. It's, you know, um, all kinds of things, you know, uh, gambling debts, all of this stuff. And so Humphrey Bogart is this detective who's trying to get these two daughters of this rich guy out of trouble. And it's a mess and he gets beaten he gets tied up he gets framed for murder it's it's awesome and the one of the things that i love about it is people have no idea about what the plot means or anything like that and most people don't care what's really great about it is the dialogue is so snappy and so well written and so full of double entendres it's just it's a masterpiece of writing and that's that's something that has always meant a lot to me that as you write your comic, pay special attention to the dialogue because if it flows, if it's fun, if people enjoy it, then they're going to come back for more. Even more important than the plot or who the bad guy is or any of that, if they like the characters, if they enjoy the dialogue and it's snappy and the fun going back and forth, they'll come back for more. That's great. I, I was in my doing my research for this. I found out that there's two versions mm-hmm. of the movie with about 20 minutes of different right. footage. So do you have like a, a preference between the uh, two? So it depends. So they're both good. And I got I got the DVD and it's got both of them on it. And so the first one makes a lot more sense for the plot. The problem is, uh, Lauren, that if you go see a Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall movie, you want to see Humphrey Bogart having fun with Lauren Bacall. And that one didn't do it. Um, so basically they cut out lots of the plot and put in lots of scenes of Bogey and Bacall just talking dirty to each other. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to admit, I like that one better. Now, is this the recut? Is, is this the recut one they did when they came back? 
Is that the one you're yeah. talking about when they came back like a year or two later and reshot a bunch of stuff to have more of her in it? Is that yeah, right, talking? because they were really worried that Lauren Bacall was going to, like, fade as a starlet and gonna just go down in flames unless they fix that film for her and so they did oh okay cool cool i was wondering if they had both cuts on on the disc that's awesome yeah they do you should definitely check it out so it sounds like it's not one of those scenarios exactly where one is preferable over the other but you sort of need both to get the whole you don't you can watch either one and it's and either one is great um i think i watched the earlier one first not knowing that there was a different version i just happened at it back in a in a blockbusters back when there used to be blockbusters um you know and and happened on it and watched it i thought it was great what's that i said the ancient times yeah, right back when I rode dinosaurs <laughs> to school uphill both ways. Um, back when there were schools. <laughs> but yeah, so no, I, I definitely recommend that one. If you like detective stories, if you like Humphrey Bogart, if you just you know want to see an old movie that actually is pretty awesome, then that's definitely one to check out. All right, let's move on. We've got uh, four more to talk about, and it's going to be hard to beat out Humphrey Bogart. I mean, that's sort of the uh, you know the model for all this stuff, but what else do you have on there? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously, you know, he's the he's the one that you kind of want to, you know, go for. Um, yeah, so I went to a different road. This, the next one I was going to pick was uh, The Invisible Man from 1933. And the reason I picked that is, for me, it's more of a, ho- a horror noir. Now, I know noir is technically from, you know, mid-40s to uh, late-40s, early-50s, but you know, for me, it, it had its early gestation back in German Expressionism back in the 20s, and then it just kind of um, came over into into the United States and ended up being more of like going into the Universal Pictures with uh, Whale and all those guys. And you could, because you could kind of see that all build up through those types of pictures, and then into the um, early 40s, uh, they kind of reclaimed it and made it their own into Noir. And, but what I love about The Invisible Man is it's it's got everything that a Noir needs, but then... It's the main character himself who's, you know, the mad scientist trying to get a cure for himself. And he's also dealing with all this, this you know, the, uh, the nightmare of, of having to live in a, um, you know, being on the run, uh, being held up in this hotel while he's trying to, you know, find this cure and so on and so forth. And for me, it was one of those things of uh, growing up as a kid watching this movie and then seeing it from 1933 where he's unwrapping himself and you're seeing through his head just blew me away. I mean, the effects of this movie are insane. And utilizing that as a, you know, from when you're a little kid, having that first impression of seeing, you know, especially in black and white, and seeing this stuff and be able to actually literally see through him. Nowadays, you'd see the matte lines and all that. This movie holds up really well in that regard. And um, for a story point, it was the best of both worlds because you get kind of like the Dr. Frankenstein mixed in with the mad scientist. And this guy's just going insane the entire time. And for me, you know, pulling pulling all that information and using that and turning it into um, the Herbert West character in, in the Curious Case is it was you know Claude um, uh, Claude Rains was my you know my go to. I mean that guy. The majority of that movie is him you know him wrapped in bandages and just his voice. You don't even see his face until the very end of the movie. So to have that character kind of come across like that it was just just so much to so much to live for when you watch that movie. I mean that movie is just between the, the sets. The character actors, I mean, there's so much great just facial expressions, all the different character actors that show up in that movie is awesome. And then you just have Claude Rain's performance is incredible. So that, that was my that was my pick for that one. Nice. Yeah, you usually it gets lumped in with the the universal monsters. Um so but but you think it falls definitely more into the noir category. I think it's a, I think it's from that point I think that's one of the ones that kind of goes between the two. You know what I mean? Um it goes because it's a very it's also the one thing I love about noir is that they're they can be tongue in cheek, they can be very mean. Um, they're kind of they're kind of their own little universe. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that's how I feel with with Visible Man. It doesn't really fit with Frankenstein or Mummy or or Creature in the Black Lagoon. It kind of fits in its own kind of world, and and to me, it feels more noirish than it does as more of a monster movie. And there have been some some modern remakes, even one from earlier this year. Uh, do you think? that they still capture that same spirit or, or have they gone more in the monster direction? Um, I, I haven't seen the new one, so I, I can't really say, but it sounds like it's from what the reviews I've read of it, it seems like it's more of the, more of the noir crime, you know, um, you know, that type of, uh, that type of aspect of it. Right. Right. It seems, yeah. Like I think of hollow man, yep. that movie, like Kevin Bacon. Oh, right. Movie. Yep. Oh, yeah. 
Well, <laughs> that that definitely dropped any sort of noir pretense and went straight for ridiculous. Right, but horror. I think you know part of the fun of noir is that it's about these characters and it really takes these characters and they don't have to be shining knights anymore. They can be flawed characters, they can be mean characters, they can commit crimes, they can do all these things. You know, the noir of it wasn't just the black and white cinematography, it was also, you know, the black of these people's souls, you know, that and I think a lot of noir you can see it crossing over from just crime movies to really being sort of non-supernatural horror movies in a way thrillers or psychological thrillers or whatever and you know the thing that i always liked about the the invisible man stories is at the heart of it you have this guy who is free from modern morality you know it's the, the basically the idea is what would you do if you didn't have to look in the mirror you know, um, and he doesn't. And so he slowly goes insane, but he also goes insane in a way that we can understand as people, because if you started acting on your base instincts, that's where you would go. And, you know, I think noir is very similar. It's about characters who aren't afraid to delve into crime and criminal activity because that's where they don't see morality anymore. They just see an opportunity to get money. So, I, you know, I see a lot of overlap between those sort of human monster movies and, and those film noirs. Well, and also too, with the invisible man, he's, he, he almost has this God complex by the end because his, you know, when he's not able to be seen by folks, he can get away with anything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the wars, most of the protagonists are always trying to, they're always trying to get away with something, you know, or, you know, trying to get to the bottom of, of a clue or, you know, um, and figure out what, you know, who's at the base of the crime. So it's, yeah, I mean, I definitely like. That's one of the things I like about this particular movie too is just the, the way the personality is of that main character. He's just very, he's very self destructive, and that's one thing with noirs as well. Is, is all those characters, you know, by the end of it, most of them are dead. You know, there's <laughs> body count in most noir, noir uh, pictures. So, yeah, fair point. All right, let's uh, let's keep it rolling. What's the third one on that list? All right, so uh, I'll go next. Uh, our uh, Mine is another one that's sort of interesting and sort of pushing the boundaries of film noir. Um, It's Sunset Boulevard. So it's about this down and out uh, screenwriter who uh, can't pay his rent and stumbles upon this old Hollywood mansion that's occupied by this silent film star who is completely batshit crazy Um, and becomes sort of her pool boy her her kept man um you know for the money and slowly gets sucked deeper and deeper into her insanity and um you know the thing that uh, one of many many things that i love about this because dave and i were going back and forth about all the great things in this movie is from the very start of it it starts with the main character being shot and killed and dying in a swimming pool and he is narrating the whole story from us from beyond the grave. And you find out that he is a really flawed character and he chooses the easy way out too many times and it leads him on this dark path. And the thing that, uh, that I've always taken from this is that was a bold choice to have a dead person narrate a movie. And, you know, it's... And then to have a film star be a, you know, kind of a horror scream queen killer sort of person. And, you know, it's just it it wasn't afraid to take a lot of different chances. And, you know, a lesser movie, it would have all fallen apart or it would have taken the easy way out. And this movie didn't take those. And so, you know, when I when I think about this movie, I think, okay, yeah don't be afraid to try something new and different and inventive and just run with it because, you know, a lot of times that's how you find the really good things that work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, it's funny. I, I think this is the first noir I had ever seen when I was a kid. And um, somebody had gave a, I was working at a video store at the time in high school and uh, somebody had given this to me and said, you got to check this movie out. And I remember taking it home, watching it on half-inch tape, and it just blew me away. And it stuck with me for a long, long time. And then um, when Mike and I were coming up with this list, I was like, you know, I haven't seen this movie in, Jesus, probably 20-something years. So I rewatched it again over the weekend. And it still stuck with me. I mean, it's it's haunting. 
Um, it's gothic. The performances uh, are just unbelievable. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying about, you know, you don't know if necessarily it's it's on the borderline of noir. I think this is like, this is like steeped in noir. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. between the set pieces, I mean, just the whole thing on New Year's, New Year's Eve where she hires a band to play and she tells mm-hmm. him, oh, the, you know, make sure you dress up to, you know, you're going to be here for when everybody shows up. Nobody ever shows up. Just her and him dancing around. And then, uh, you know, that's her wooing him and so on and so forth. It just, it's just such a dark, there's such dark characters in this movie. I don't even know if, I think, I think his female co-writer, um, you know, back in the studio, I think she's the only like glowing light in that entire movie because everybody mm-hmm. else is pretty, pretty grimy. Right. You know? And, and he, you, you keep spending the whole time movie thinking, okay, he's got to end up with that glowing light girl that, you know, the one good person and she's going to salvage him or whatever. And he's like, you know, he sees those opportunities and he throws them away every single time. He keeps going back for, you know, for the money or to take care of the old lady or for whatever the reasons are that he does it. And, you know, that's it. You know, a lesser movie would have had him escape, you know, and, and gotten with the girl and that would have been that. And this movie didn't want that. This movie wanted to deal with a dark character with a lot of flaws and see how he interacts in this really dark, insane world. And, and I think, you know, that that really resonated. And that's what makes this movie so great is because it doesn't take the easy way out. No, not at all. And the other thing, too, I want to give it credit for. I mean, they, they used a lot of, um, I mean, they used Paramount. They used a lot of the stars, the uh, villains in it and so on and so forth. And I think that's what's really compelling with the film, too, is that they actually used real studio heads, real directors, real old movie stars that had, you know, been retired pretty much at that point, you know, in real life. And... I think it just, I don't know, it's almost a very earnest and, and kind of sad betrayal of, you know, the final throws of, of actors at that time, you know, going from the silent era and um, not, not really transitioning too much into, you know, into talking films and kind of where their careers went. So it was, it was definitely a, a, an interesting film watching the mentality of just these characters, a beautiful character piece. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, what's, what's next? All right, so next is a, um, an Italian film, uh, which is one of my favorites uh, that I've, I've seen multiple times over the years. Um, it's from 1970. It's called The Conformist. It's a Ber- uh, Bertolucci film. And um, it's an interesting film because it's, it's, a, it's a color film. It's not black and white like we've been talking about tonight. But um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen this film. But just before I even get into the whole character development of it, the, the, the tone and look of it is... Just absolutely amazing. The, the light, the the staging, the the the, uh, the camera move. I mean, the, the, the attention to detail is just, is just astonishing. It takes place in 1930, uh, Italy. Um, the uh, the main character is played by Jean Louis uh, Tringinen, who plays Marcello, and he's a uh, he works for the secret police for Mussolini, and he's hired uh, as an assassin to take out a uh, professor. And it's basically his his struggle throughout the entire film of uh, his own personal uh, tragedy that happened to him as a kid of being molested, and he has to kind of carry that through. And so he's a very stoic character, and he's trying to. He's always he seems like definitely a, a kind of a fish out of water in his own time because he doesn't know how to really interact with anybody, um, and he's just trying to kind of work through this internal struggle while he's you know having to carry out this assassination attempt. And what's ingenious about this movie is it kind of it starts off again, kind of telling the story from back to front, where it's the two gentlemen in a car, and they just start having a discussion, and then it starts kind of flashing back, flashing back, and then you get kind of lost in the flashbacks until you kind of catch up to that moment of time um, where the assassination is actually taking place. And you know, this was made you know a couple of years before The Godfather Part Two, so you can see a lot of influences from The Godfather Part Two um, had taken from this. Um, but it's a highly recommended film. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I like Marcel as the character himself is when, uh, you know, I think when I was creating Ward, you know, Ward's always wearing, a, you know, brown suits, brown this. He's very stoic character, very just to the point and so on and so forth. That's Marcel, is, his character in this is just ingenious, um, you know, in that matter. He just kind of, is, he's one of these people that you just watch him, he absorbs everything in. You really don't know how he's gonna, you know, how he's gonna be able to process the uh, information and act on it. But when he does, it's, you know, uh, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It's, a, it's an amazing film. If you guys have ever get a chance to check it out, it's one I highly recommend. Hey, 
because I couldn't get to see any of these movies or stream any of them, I watched all the trailers, and man, the trailer for this one really was so stylish, and and it, it had a dream quality to it that I don't know if the whole movie actually carries through on, but watching it, I felt like these dreams, like it's, people are being traced, and people are popping out of nowhere in the forest, and there's there's violence and and maybe it's just my dreams but it really <laughs> felt like some some weird dreams i've had in the past and it made me more interested to see it but also a little more like on edge about well it's, it's funny because the whole the film has a lot to do with fascism at the time in the 30s and mussolini and all that where you know we were talking before about the big sleep that you can just kind of watch that movie and not even care about the plot it's the same thing with this i mean i've seen this movie probably about a half a dozen times in my life and each time i learn new things but I don't even have to like you don't even have to dive into the plot, you know, because I, I I had watched the dub once and and then I was like, eh, I, so I, I ever since then I've always watched it subtitled, and I think it's much more poetic and almost operatic the way it's the film's put together. And I don't know if in the trailer, I don't know if they show there's a sequence where he has to go when he's speaking to um, a priest, and it's in a uh, like a radio, uh, you know, a, a radio sound room, and so he's in a radio sound room, and there's this two-way glass and in the on the opposite end of the glass is the entire radio show going on so you've got people singing and dancing and playing music and so on and so forth and it just it's a it's a, just an awesome throwback to that time period You're watching this production value of a radio show just an absolute this radio show going over the half a dozen people singing and dancing and playing instruments while this deep conversations going on between an assassin and a priest and you're just like wow you know um but it is a festive for the eyes i mean it's, it's something to definitely check out Cool. Yeah. Uh, this was the only one on the list that I had never heard of. It was fascinating to read about. I just I, like Graham. I wish I had a chance to to get more into it before we recorded. But it's it's definitely going to be on the list for later. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So the uh, last one, uh, Mike and I were uh, trying to figure out, and we wanted to uh, come up with something a little bit more modern. So we came up with Blade Runner as a neo noir, um, you know, from 1982. And I'll let you start off, Mike, and then I'll. I'll I'll come in after you if you want. Yeah, sure. So for anybody who doesn't know Blade Runner by this point, where you been? Um, <laughs> Blade Runner takes noir into the future. So it's a sci-fi noir where um, Decker is, Harrison Ford is a detective trying to find, uh, I guess, genetic programmed replicants, which are kind of androids, kind of clones. Um, who have escaped to Earth and shouldn't be here, and um, he needs to track them down, and he needs to uh, take care of them. Um, and as he does, questions arise about what makes someone human. Is the girl that he's with um, human? Is he human? Uh, what exactly is it? And so um, brilliantly directed by Ridley Scott early on in his career, um, you know, it's just a really amazing futuristic take. And then to lay noir on top of it. So you have this detective character. And the great thing about it is, you know, if you look back at Harrison Ford's like 80s output, you know, his characters were never the nicest people in the room. You know, Indiana Jones was happy to to do what he had to do to get that artifact and Blade Runner is very similar in that he's doing what he has to do to finish this job and he's trying not to get personally invested in it and there's many many different versions of this movie uh, you know there's the director's cut without the voiceover narration there's a there's the studio cut with Harrison Ford voiceover narration explaining the plot there's the the ultra final possible ending where Ridley Scott went back and maybe filmed a scene or two and now says this is the definitive version and in three years we'll get another definitive version so um, it's one of those movies where there's a lot to be found in it and it has a lot of meaning for a lot of people and you know for me and then I'll kick it over to Dave is again taking things that are not that don't go together and putting them together and running in a new direction. Like, you know, sci-fi and noir really don't overlap. You know, one's from the 40s, one is from the future. And the idea of putting those elements together and run with it, running with it and taking them serious and finding interesting questions about humanity and consciousness and things like that to lay on top of these noir elements, it just it works really, really well in ways that 
I haven't seen any neo-noir since then that's even come close to it. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, you know, what's fascinating about it is the fact that, you know, Ridley Scott, must, he really did his research because, I mean, he uses every every trick in the book between smoke, slashes of light, you know, um, silhouettes. I mean, the, the Bradbury building that was under construction at the time utilizes that. I mean, you know, he, he, he gives darkness a whole new word, uh, new name. I mean, that, that movie is shot so incredibly well. And then you, you add on top of it these kind of, you know, these characters like Deckard, you don't really know much about this guy except that he just hunts down replicants. You don't really know anything about his personal life. Um, you kind of learn a little bit about it here and there as, as the movie goes along. But he's finding out about himself as he's, you know, um, hunting down these replicants and, and kind of what they mean to him. And, and they almost, each one of them almost seems like a different part of his own personality, mm-hmm. you know. And I think when he finally has to confront uh, Batty at the end of it, I think he's confronting himself in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. I think one of the most you know, poignant parts of that whole film is at the very end where Batty has all the lines and Ford's character doesn't, doesn't have one, you know, um, you know, that's 10 minutes of them, you know, just kind of talking to, you know, looking at each other. And then finally when uh, Batty passes away and then, um, you know, that's it, (laughs) you know, it's kind of crazy when you think about since he's a, since Ford was the main character of that film, but he's almost the background character by, you know, in a lot of senses in that movie. Right, and it really harkens back to that idea of, of noir for me, which is, you know, finding the humanity in these really terrible characters. You know, like before noir, you would have these crime stories and the the criminals were bad and the good guys were good. And it was almost like Westerns in a sense where it's like there would be white hats and there would be black hats. And, you know, you knew exactly who was who. And noir came along and said, look, there can be a lot more shades to the bad guys and there can be a lot more shades to the good guys. And maybe the good guys aren't good and maybe the bad guys aren't bad. And what I like about Blade Runner, one of the many things I like about Blade Runner is you start off thinking these replicants are the bad guys. And by the end, you sympathize with what they're going through. And as you said, they become in ways the main characters. And that is really solid writing if you know, it, it's 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 really true about a movie that a movie is judged by how well written the bad guy is. If you have a good bad guy who's well written and sympathetic and interesting, the movie is ten times better than if it's just a stock, you know, bad guy. And and that movie really managed to bring that home. Well, and I mean, it's you know, movies what almost forty years old, and we're still talking about it. And those characters, like you said earlier, I mean, you know, there's never been another film like it. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I know they tried to kind of reimagine, you know, with a new one, uh, which I never saw. But from what I could tell, it's it, it doesn't come close. I mean, maybe in the aesthetics of, you know, the look, but as far as the characters, I can't see, I can't see it coming close, you know, by any stretch. Well, and that, it's it's yeah. it's not a competitor, but it's worth a watch. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, my my problem is with a lot of these remakes is they go for the production values of being superior to the original but they miss like some of the 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 characters or the plots or the writing or they miss the nuance of it and it's you know they're trying to outdo the production value of the first one and they lose something by doing that yeah yeah i see what you're saying yeah well i mean heck it's blade runner is one of my favorite movies i i feel compelled to add to the discussion but i think you guys have nailed it (laughs) I'd, I'd just be wasting my breath at this point. Phew, so yeah, we got the right number one. I was I was worried there for a minute. <laughs> there you go. Certainly for this audience. Yeah, yeah you're in the you're in the right place there. <laughs> All right. Well, I, definitely one of our more impressive top five lists. But uh, let's not uh, forget the meat of it: the uh, Lovecraft PI Miskatonic High crossover. Um, let's just make sure we get all the links and socials in. Um, where can people go if they want to read this and you know read more of your stuff? Yeah, go for it, Mike. Okay, yeah, so uh, we are on Kickstarter. We're on Kickstarter until January, what, 24th, I think, something like that. Um, So we got a a little bit while longer, and then uh, Miskatonic High is on Kickstarter every other month selling our our books, so feel free to come find us there. We we have a website, MiskatonicHighComic.com, so come check us out there. And we're definitely, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. How about you, Dave? Where are you? 
Yeah, so we, um, you know, like Mike says, we're on Kickstarter right now. Uh, we're going to be also launching a new series, uh, limited uh, series called Berserkers uh, in February on Kickstarter. And then otherwise you can find us on Instagram and uh, social media and at lovecraftpi.com. Fantastic. Well, that was a blast. Guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And while we're giving out thanks, we, of course, want to extend an extra special thanks uh, to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief, guy behind our theme song. Uh, check him out at uh, Jamie Reum Official or Jamie underscore Reum on Instagram and YouTube, respectively. Reum is spelled R-E-A-U-M-E. And uh, besides that, we also want to, of course, thank you, our audience. Uh, because of you, we get to hang out and talk about cool movies and read good comic books. And it's uh, it's considered productive and contributing to society <laughs> rather than the opposite, which is the stereotype. Um, chances are you have your own thoughts about the the top five noirs or other things you want to look at into the into the comic books or if you want to pass on something to us or directly on to, to dave and mike uh all kinds of ways you can get a hold of us here at geek top five uh graham what's our what is our contact information these days we have our website geektop5.com we're also available on email geektop5 at gmail.com we have a facebook page facebook.com slash geektop5 and we're on twitter at geektop5 be sure to check out Lovecraft P.I. and Miskatonic High and their crossovers. Uh, lots of good stuff. Uh, we've we've read a bunch thanks to... I went through to buy a couple just to make sure we weren't just beating you guys, but Thank Dave you. and Mike ensure that we got a chance to have a look and they're fantastic. And you should give them a look and that should keep you busy for the next little while uh, until we get a chance to talk to you again. Till then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>